0: This is a diet of Brussels. What have we learned about the EU's uh, negotiating mandate for Article 50? Well, we're here just a couple of days after the European Council meeting on the 29th of April, so one month after Theresa May submitted the UK's formal notification. And uh, at that uh, meeting of the twenty-seven. Uh, together with the european parliament uh, the uh, commission the european council has set out uh, the broad mandate for what it uh, aims for or how it will pursue the negotiations in the remaining 23 months uh, of the article 50 period now just to be clear The document that was agreed uh, on the 29th of April is not the final full negotiating mandate. Uh, Remember that it's the Commission that will be doing the negotiations under the guidance of this document that we're about to discuss. And there will be... Uh, in the next month or so uh, a much more detailed document that sets out more substantive points uh, which will guide the direction on specific uh, areas of policy. But this is really the kind of the framework document that uh, the EU is going to work to. Now this matters because again and this is a point that can't be reiterated enough article 50 is a process whereby the eu decides what it wants to offer to a departing member state rather than what the departing member state decides it would like to have in essence the uk has two choices it either accepts the package that is presented to it uh, by the 27 or it decides to leave after two years with no deal now we'll We've talked about this before in previous episodes. We will doubtless talk about that again. And in fact, uh, I, I think in my next podcast, I'm going to talk about this very kind of issue. So actually, the key part of this is not so much what the UK is aiming for, except in that very broad brushstroke of not wanting to be past the single market. And instead, it's much more how the 27 have come together in agreeing their position. Now, this is probably a good point to tell you that, uh, once again, uh, as of this podcast and for the next uh, 18 months, I'm once again working on a research project with the UK's Economic uh, and Social Research Council on their UK in a Changing Europe programme. And I'm working on a project where we're going to look at the positions of the EU member states and of the institutions and see how they develop over time. And we're going to be having a whole series of uh, uh, episodes where we're going to talk about those positions in a lot more detail. So I'm going to come back to that. It's also just to kind of uh, make sure you know where I'm coming from. I don't think it changes anything. It didn't change anything when I was in that position through 2016. Um, And certainly uh, I expect there to not be any uh, restrictions on what I can and can't say. Let's come back then to this document, these uh, Brexit uh, guidelines. It's worth uh, spending a bit of time just going through them just to, to, to talk about the detail. But I think the, the first most obvious uh, uh, observation is that actually the EU has had a remarkably consistent position ever since basically June 2016. So almost from the day of the result, the EU has adopted a very consistent position that there is a procedure under article 50, that uh, the member states will work together to uh, negotiate through that mechanism and that mechanism alone, and also that they will uh, preserve the integrity of the EU. Now, from those very simple ideas, which are, I think, without exception accepted, pretty much everything else follows, that uh, the whole uh, unwillingness, uh, not just unwillingness, but the actual determination that no negotiations would happen until Article 50 was triggered is something that stemmed from that initial declaration just a couple of days after uh, the referendum result at the end of June. It is also reflected in the clear line that has always been taken and is uh, front and centre in this document that uh membership has to be worth something that uh, there's no point having a, a union where you can get the benefits without uh, having to take on the costs uh, or being a member. So uh, I think this is really where the, the, the document starts from. It says that, uh, you know, it says it wants to have a, a close relationship with the UK. It wants to make sure that there is a, a balanced uh, uh, agreements that balances rights and obligations, and that uh, that if you're not in the single market, then you're not in the single market. So that means firstly that you can't try and do the cherry picking, which the UK has said last month it doesn't want to do. Uh, so you can't pick which freedoms of movement you want, you know, for goods and services, but uh, not for uh, people. But it also means that you can't go for sectoral agreements. And again, I think this is an important point that uh, a lot of the debate in the UK has been, well, for this section of the economy, we might be able to have some special arrangements and do something. And the EU, I think, has been very clear that this is not going to happen. Now, uh, linked to that, I think there's also uh, a clear set of procedural uh, commitments. The first one, uh, and the most difficult one, Uh, I think, for the UK, is that this is going to be a very transparent negotiation. As we've seen already, the EU is neither willing nor able to conduct negotiations in secrecy. It's a massive undertaking. It involves 27 different governments, uh, many different agencies and individuals, and the capacity of the system to retain information is is basically zero. So uh, given that you've got to involve a parliament, the European Parliament, uh, plus a number of national parliaments in this discussion, uh, there really is no way of doing this in anything other than a, a transparent kind of way. So we make a, a virtue of it. Second point that comes procedurally, apart from that transparency, is the notion of uh, no deal uh, until everything is uh, agreed. So uh, this is a, a staple of international negotiations that you can have lots of interim uh, decisions, but until you actually get to the final signing of the document at the end of the process, you haven't got any agreement. Now, this is going to matter for the position of EU nationals uh, in the UK and UK nationals in the EU, uh, which both sides say they want to provide some certainty, and again that's reiterated here uh, in the European Council document, but I think until we actually get to the end of the process there will be no guarantees about what rights Uh, are accorded to those individuals uh, in either direction unless one side decides to make a unilateral uh, decision and that would almost certainly have to be on the UK side and it's very hard to see that that will happen um, given the uh, probable inability of the 27 to to reciprocate now uh, I think from all of this we get then the rest of of what follows Uh, the The tricky part, I think, for the EU is that there's an awful lot to be covered. Um, It's clear that around that European Council meeting uh, on the 29th, there was a degree of unhappiness around the general election uh, announcement from Theresa May, because it basically means that until the uh, 9th of June, assuming that Theresa May uh, is returned to number 10, uh, there are no negotiations. that uh, the government has gone into PIRDA, uh it's not going to do anything, uh, and so even though the EU is basically ready to go, uh, the UK is not. Now, um, the flip side of that is that the EU wants to structure and phase the way it takes these negotiations. So the first part is really sorting out the immediate effects of withdrawing that you've got to unpack the the immediate effects of leaving and deal with those and then move on to a new relationship. So I think the the wording of the document suggests that there will be separate negotiations about uh, a future relationship but there will also be some discussions about what that might look like and how that might fit. Now uh, the wording that the uh, European Council document provides is uh vague enough that there is some flexibility here so it says the european council will monitor progress closely and determine when sufficient progress keywords "uh, has been achieved to allow negotiations to proceed to the next phase so it's not an absolute we have to tidy up uh, the departure before we can think about the new relationship uh but it's uh it's Clearly, saying that the first thing that is going to be talked about is sorting out the obligations that exist—financial, legal, political—and then we can start thinking about what comes after. Now, uh, in all of this, I think that there is a uh, uh, a query. There's a, a lot of wording in the document about the need for some kind of transitional arrangements. That it's clear that there is an awful lot of complexity. Uh, There's going to be a lot of uncertainty for economic operators, for citizens, for legal orders, Uh, and so there needs to be some kind of bridging mechanism, particularly if we're envisaging a new uh, relationship. Now uh, there's no indication about how long that might be uh, although again uh, echoing the the UK's intentions it says that transitional arrangements should be clearly defined, limited in time and subject to effective enforcement mechanisms. So uh, again this is looking like, given that both sides are talking about this, that uh, there will be something probably not a million miles from uh, EU membership type uh, uh, rights and obligations that extend beyond uh, the time that uh, membership itself actually finishes. That until you can put a new architecture in place, the simplest thing, the least uh, disruptive thing, is to extend various elements. And I think we're going to be seeing a lot more about how that works as time goes on. Now, uh, in terms of the way that the obligations uh, are going to be rolled up, I think the the position of the European Council has not been to to put uh, substantive conclusions down. Instead, it's about process and procedure. And again, uh, the EU has a lot of experience with this. It says, you know, let's agree a mechanism for determining what the financial bill might be, for example. And I think that this is a, uh, a key one, that there are a number of financial obligations that are in place that are coming up that needs to be addressed, and actually, the simplest thing, rather than putting a figure on it, which is politically inconvenient, if nothing else, is actually say, well, what would sound fair? What's a fair way of determining what that might be? The other thing that also comes through is a more political kind of issue, which is again, in several places, a reminder of the implications that come from the UK leaving the EU on other relationships. So particularly here, we've got mention of the Good Friday Agreement, the importance that it has with Ireland. Uh, we also have mention of the sovereign base areas uh, in Cyprus, which uh, mean that there is a an awareness that uh, there is a knock-on effect. Uh, on bilateral arrangements and that even if we've got uh, the Article 50 process there is still going to have to be a number of bilateral agreements and uh, negotiations that go on in parallel with this uh, between the UK and assorted partners. Again we think back a few weeks to the whole Gibraltar issue we have to see if that comes back uh, in any particular form. However, going along this, I think we haven't really seen anything that looks particularly surprising. Uh, The EU has always been clear that the Court of Justice has to play a role in the negotiation uh, outcome, uh, that it is the competent body to determine uh, the resolution of uh, disputes, and uh, that's not going to uh, change. So I think the Uh, interesting thing has been is that the UK I think has belatedly realised this and has talked much less about uh, stopping or limiting the role of the court of justice. I think they've uh, reached a certain degree of uh, understanding. There's a, a later section of these conclusions which is around the future relationship and here again it's mirroring the, the UK's words you know, that, yes, we can have an ambitious uh, free trade uh, agreement, um, but it's also been clear that this is not tantamount to participation in the single market, that there has to be some uh, uh, differentiation between participation in the single market and not being in the single market. And it's clear that there is a degree of detail behind this that will become more apparent in the uh, Commission's uh, more detailed mandate uh, about the uh, limitations that will come from not being in uh, the single market and enjoying the fall uh, four freedoms. Also, there's an awareness about the need to consider the implication and the relationship with other areas of cooperation, most obviously security uh, defense, foreign policy, other areas like this, that uh, I think are going to be uh, ones uh, that will come through. Ultimately, uh, I think the, uh, the, the final point that to draw out here is the final one of the uh, conclusions, which is entitled the principle of sincere cooperation. Now, this is one of the core principles of the EU, which says that member states should uh, stand up for what they've signed up to, that if they've signed up for it, they should do it. And this is a general principle and one which has been used in lots of different contexts. But here it's basically saying that until the EU, uh, the UK leaves the EU, it remains a member state. And I think that this has partly been triggered by the annoyance of other member states that the UK currently is uh, refusing to make any uh uh, to participate in any negotiations about the EU's budget, which uh, needs to be discussed because it's in the middle of a general election campaign. Now, that has been its historic practice that during general elections, it doesn't uh, engage, because of PERDA rules, in these kind of discussions. But again, this is uh, feels like a, an unnecessary uh, diversion from what is going on. But uh, the point here is that uh, the EU has... Uh, an ongoing life, uh, both within the period of Article 50 and beyond. It needs to decide things, it has things on its legislative uh, order book and it needs the UK to keep on participation uh, participating and being uh, a member of the system right up until the last moment. Otherwise there are knock-on effects for everyone else. So key messages to take Firstly, the EU has been remarkably consistent in what it is going to uh, ask of the process. It has tried to frame that in terms of principles and processes rather than in terms of outcomes. Importantly, I think it has maintained up until now a very high degree of coordination, not just between the member states, but also between the Member States and the European Parliament. And it's clear that the European Parliament has played uh, a well-integrated role with the Member States in drawing up these mandates. Now, uh, I think at the beginning of the process, there was a a lot of concern that the European Parliament might go off and uh, uh, make life a lot more difficult for everybody, but actually seems to be uh, comfortably within uh, the process. The proof of all of this is going to come Uh, in June when we get to some negotiations. Does this system work? Does it actually produce uh, progress in a way that looks like it is uh, going to produce uh, an agreement within the two-year period? At this point, it's looking like the EU has a fairly consistent uh, and structured uh, model. The question is, where is the UK? And as I talk about in my next episode, uh, about the Brexit supper, uh, that might cause some issues. So, we shall see. I will put a link up to these uh, mandates in uh, a blog post on our website, which is www.adietofbrussels.com. As always, if you've got questions or queries, things you'd like me to talk about, I'm more than happy to do that. You can reach me through the website or through our Twitter handle, which is at Brussels. And I will talk to you soon. Bye.